The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry and I'm here with my colleague Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. So later in the show, we're going to investigate what Under Armour's dismal fourth quarter results mean for both the company and the broader battle waged by investors to have one vote for each share they own. But before that, we turn our focus to Washington, D.C. President Donald Trump has already provided us with a smorgasbord of material we could dip into. But let's start with the latest. He just picked Neil Gorsuch to replace deceased Antony Scalia on the Supreme Court. We're joined on the line from the nation's capital by our very own Gina Chan. Hello, Gina. Hey, guys. So President Trump just named his first Supreme Court nominee 12 days into the White House. It was a bit of a spectacle. It was, you know, primetime television. Gina, why don't you tell us a little bit about this? It was kind of an unusual way to go about it and why he did it this way and then possibly a little bit about his pick. Yeah, well, it actually was a bit less dramatic than people thought it was going to be. There was some talk before the actual announcement that perhaps he could have both of the finalists <laughs> there and then announced it just like... Or just like a reality TV show, right? Like The Apprentice. Like, exactly. And instead of saying you're, you're fired, saying you're hired. Uh, but <laughs> luckily, he did not do that. And, and it was unusual to announce it in, in this kind of way, but it was actually given what else has happened during his short presidency, the most sort of normal and staid um, event he's had so far. He um, that, that in itself is, is just an amazing statement. Yeah, but. No, exactly. I mean, everything's relative, uh, as we are beginning to learn. But, um, you know, he basically uh, came out and, and gave a short speech. He did brag about how this was the most transparent process and how he put out a list uh, when he was a candidate of of, uh, people that he would want to see on the court and then uh, picked from that list um, and talked about how his uh, supporters were, were really watching this carefully. So he uh, did make a, a big deal about that, but then he um, did sort of a, a very sort of traditional announcement of Neil Gorsuch, as you said. He's a federal appeals court judge on the 10th Circuit in Denver. Um, he was appointed in 2006 by uh, President George Bush at the time, and he actually got in through a unanimous vote in the Senate. Obviously, Republicans now are, are using that to talk about you know, why Democrats are already opposing him. But obviously, they're throwing that back in their face because that's just what the Republicans did with Obama's uh, pick for Merrick Garland, um, who was the original choice to replace uh, Justice Scalia. But he just sat around for a year, basically, until uh, Trump got elected. Yeah. So so one thing about him, uh, Gorsuch, I mean, he's, he's relatively young. He's 49. And he seems like he is uh, conservative and also in the same view as Scalia in terms of how he interprets the Constitution, if that's correct. And and so if, if I'm sitting here as a business, do, you, do we have any sort of inkling on his views on businesses, how businesses should, you know, go forward? I mean, this this there have been several court cases in, in front of the Supreme Court about some of these issues. Like, what can we expect from him on this front? Yeah, he does seem to um, be more favorable to businesses. Um, and as you said, he is in the mold of 
Scalia is seen as a conservative justice who believes in sort of this strict reading of, of the Constitution and of statutes, um, not really open to broad interpretation. Um, so he's sort of seen as like a Scalia mini-me, although I think he's not as sarcastic as uh, Justice Scalia could be. Um, but in terms of businesses, he has um, ruled in favor of, of certain cases or sided with businesses in certain cases. Certain businesses that had certain religious leanings were really against the contraceptive provision in, in Obamacare and, and didn't want to participate in that aspect of it and he sided with with businesses on that front. He's also um, not in favor of what's called the um, Chevron Doctrine which gives agencies sort of a lot of deference and leeway in terms of rule writing and Gorsuch seems to think that that's sort of going a bit too far for the agencies and that they're really doing the kind of work that should be up to Congress um, in terms of writing detailed rules and saying how uh, certain uh, regulations should be implemented. So on, on that front, it, it could be favorable to businesses going forward. Gina, you touched on this earlier on, that the, the chance of him actually getting uh, approved by the Senate this time round. And this, I think, it, it will be the test case in many respects for how the two sides, Democrats and Republicans, do and don't get on over the next two to four years, and also what impact that could have on the nation's confidence, on business confidence, consumer confidence. What's your sense at the moment of whether Democrats are going to try the filibuster or whether they will in fact side with Republicans and say, you know, we need to get the ninth person on the Supreme Court and we've had the election, the electorate has spoken, and yes, we lost the battle last year, but, you know, we're now in a in a new administration and we've got to reflect that. I mean, where, where, does this, where does Congress fall down on this, do you think? Well, there's a bit of a split in the Democratic Party between the liberal base among people like Senators Elizabeth Warren and Sherrod Brown, who came out very quick, quickly after the uh, Gorsuch announcement and said they would oppose his nomination. And then, you know, Democrats from more sort of swing states, if you will, or more sort of moderate Democrat um, leanings. And several of them, including I think Senator Manchin from West Virginia and others, have already said they aren't going to uh, participate in a filibuster. So it looks like, so far at least, Republicans could get their pick with maybe too much of a fight. Um, But we'll see. I mean, the liberal base is pretty vocal and has uh, a lot of strength in its own right. So uh, Chuck Schumer, who's a Senate Democratic leader, is really going to have to figure out how he's going to balance that. Okay, so let's let's assume he gets on. What what happens next? Your piece when when Gorsuch was was named was was uh, a rather well, I suppose amusing isn't the word given what it, what what you're saying, but you're basically saying that uh, that you know you kind of need that ninth person because the Supreme Court is probably going to be very busy in a Trump administration. Yeah, we've already seen out of the gate, it really just right after um, Trump took the oath of office on January 20th that um, there were already lawsuits filed against him saying he's violating the Constitution's emoluments clause and prohibits gifts from foreign officials. That's because Trump has decided not to divest of his hotels and golf courses and instead will have his sons run it. So that's already become an issue um, with this most recent temporary visa ban on citizens of seven uh, Muslim-majority countries that's also now produced lawsuits, including um, some that could be supported by, I think, Amazon, Microsoft, 
Microsoft and others saying that this is violating various people's um, due process rights and, and equal protection clauses of the Constitution. So, I mean, he's, you know, been in the office for less than two weeks and we're already seeing a few cases that could reach the Supreme Court. So it will be pretty busy and he could have actually more chances, though, to tip the balance. Having Gorsuch on the bench just basically restores the slim conservative majority, but with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's turning 84 this year. She's one of the liberal uh, alliance on the bench. Anthony Kennedy, who is seen traditionally on the conservative side, but has been the key vote in legalizing gay marriage and, and some other cases. He's talked about retiring in the past. He's also in his 80s. So uh, there's uh, could be a lot more chances uh, for the Trump administration to shape the court in the future. Yeah, and, and for many years to come, too. And um, so on, on that note, thank you, Gina, for joining us. And I'm sure you'll be back on soon to discuss more about the goings on in D.C. Thanks, guys. So let's turn to our second Washington topic, the elephant in the room, basically. Trump was barely out of the first week of his presidency when his immigration ban edict threw into chaos travel plans for thousands of citizens of seven mostly Muslim countries. It also sparked impromptu mass protests, prompted Silicon Valley and several major non-tech firms to speak out against the ban and led to Trump to fire his acting attorney general. To help divine what this means for America's economy and businesses, we're joined by Breaking Views Deputy Editor Richard Beals. Hi, Richard. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure to be here again. So a busy first week, week and a half. He's really been keeping everyone on their toes. What do you make of this so far? Well, most presidents come out of the gate pretty fast. They try to do a bunch of stuff. Uh, Not, I think, usually it's fair to say as controversial things as Trump is trying to do. That said, he is doing the things he said he would do. Now, this is interesting in itself. I mean, take take this immigration ban that has some short term impacts on companies and they have to navigate how to deal with the, the Trump Twitter feed and possible sort of hate mail from the Trump administration, basically. But more broadly, investors have boosted the stock market since Trump was elected. And the the view seems to be, well, it'll be great because he's going to cut taxes and cut regulation. And, and he that's ma- put up the S&P, what, 6 7%? 6 7%. Bank stocks have gone up 20 30%. Yeah, bank stocks are up a lot. Some energy stocks, you know, there, there, there's been some what Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates called animal spirits. It's a terrible phrase. I know. People have been talking about how this could all unleash, you know, great virtuous cycle of investment and jobs and profit and all the rest of it. And, you know, it's always seemed to me that Yes, but they're forgetting those those two things might happen, but they're also forgetting all the negative things Trump had promised, like trade blocks and tariffs and even the immigration um, limitations and deportation of illegal immigrants that he's talked about during his campaign are, are not good economics. They're, you know, you, for one thing, you reduce the population, you you reduce new blood in the workforce, illegal or otherwise, and all those things net net. I mean, not necessarily for individuals, but for the economy as a whole, w- would be bad things. And you think that's that's finally showing in the way the stock market has, has started to react to some extent? Or The stock market is a bit softer since the weekend, but, I mean, it's still up from the election. And yet, it seems to me these short-term things, tax, ta- I mean, of course, business people love the idea of a tax cut, yeah. but they they haven't given enough weight to these other things. And w- one thing this tells you, the, the weekend 
or the Friday's order is that he's going to do the things, all the things, or try to do all the things he said he was going to do, which includes the bad things, not just the good things. The second thing it shows you is, at least so far, a certain amount of chaos. And none of these things are as good for business, even tax cuts, if it's done chaotically. do you think there's some pricing in, though, of, of this? I mean, if I look at the S&P, if it's up just 7%, that's, that's less than the boost I would expect to go to a lot of firms' bottom lines from just ch- cutting the tax cu- making the tax cuts. Yeah, that's certainly true that, you know, if you cut 25% of taxes, or sorry, if you cut taxes from 35 to 25%, you've taken, let's say, a third off the taxes, which adds a similar amount to, to profit, in effect. And so if everything else being equal, yes, you'd expect a, a bigger boost than that. But, you know, it's not quite that simple because most firms don't pay the full tax rate now and they probably would. The idea would be they would pay something closer to the new full rate. So the differential is not as big as, yeah. as it's. And there's also the, the, the border tax and, um, and border adjustment issues that we discussed in previous programs, which, which make the tax issue far more complicated than the simple well, it's much cut. more complicated. Yeah. It makes it produces all kinds of winners and losers. If you say we're, we're going to, and this was the Republicans' plan, not the Trump plan officially, right? The congressional Republicans. If we say anything we lose as a government revenue by cutting corporate taxes, we're going to get it back in some way as a border tariff. Now that if you manufacture in the U.S. and sell in the U.S., that's great for you. Um, but if you import everything fully formed and sell it in the U.S., it's terrible for you. So there are there are winners and losers. So, Anthony, this uh, also poses all sorts of other problems for companies. What, like, for example, when the immigration thing happened this past weekend, you had a slew of firms coming out, Starbucks, Goldman Sachs, numerous Silicon Valley companies saying, like, they don't support yeah. uh, Trump's latest initiative. And it's almost as if, you know, they have to sit here and think about how to respond, right? And it's yeah, even it's, it's, a, a, it's incredible it's they're a, even responding to begin with. Yeah, it's, it's a very tricky one. I mean, I mean, first of all, you, you can look at um, how uh, companies have responded to various things in the past. So um, where, where you can have an impact as a company quite quickly. So if you look at Indiana, where there was the, the, the anti-gay laws that came out a couple of years ago, or North Carolina with its uh, transgender toilet ban last year, I mean, just saying that phrase... As, as part of a, a broad discussion about policy is ridiculous. I mean, these things just shouldn't be uh, policy discussions, really. But um, companies came out and said, we disagree with this. We're going to boycott. Some of them said, we're going to boycott the state. We're going to boycott certain uh, maybe government work, whatever. And that had a very rapid effect. In this instance, it's much more difficult. First of all, what do you actually attack? It's not as if you can boycott the... Well, you suppose you could boycott the US government, but you do so at your peril. But also... This policy is one that's been draped in the national security flag. Regardless of what you think of it as a company, you got to think, how does this play with my current employees and my potential future well, employees? Well, exactly, that's exactly it. And I think a lot of these companies, when they addressed it, they were speaking to their customers and they were speaking to their uh, potential you know, hires that they may have to go Absolutely. out in the workplace. So, you know, A lot of Silicon Valley, they're going to go out and hire a lot of millennials. A lot of millennials use and a lot stuff of, like and Uber a lot of for- and, a lot of and foreigners. Lyft, for example, and a lot of foreigners. And they've been, they've been talking a lot about how they, they have employees who are stranded abroad. There's examples of you know, Iranian-born citizens or, or, or whatever who've been trapped abroad because they're, they're, they're trapped as CEOs of startups have been trapped abroad because they can't get back because they're, they're born in one of the seven countries that's been, been uh, listed for this temporary ban. Um, but it's not just the, that they've got to think about. It's you know, how is what we say going to impact our customers? And you look back again to what happened after the election when Pepsi and a few others, but especially Pepsi, came out. I think the CEO went on, on CNBC and said, 
you know, my daughters and some of my employees who are foreigners are, are worried. They're crying about the election result. They didn't want Trump to win. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I mean, as a CEO, you might want to maybe wonder how you should, should phrase that. But it's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But a lot of Trump supporters came out and said, let's boycott Pepsi. And that's what you're beginning to see now already. People are saying, well, you know, let's let's boycott Nike. Nike made a very strong statement against against this ban. Or, or the reverse. The reverse happened with Uber as well. Yes. I mean, Uber, by, by not actually taking part in a one-hour um, taxi strike in New York City, a lot of people took to Twitter and Facebook and other social media with the hashtag delete Uber. And I've seen the responses on, on my Facebook feed from friends who've done that, who've got this response from Uber saying, we're sorry to see you go. Please believe you know, we, we share your concerns. And they came out and finally said, we're going to give $3 million to a fund to help, uh, a legal fund to help those who are impacted by immigration. But this this is a divisive Another divisive issue, right, that that has been sort of created by this very sort of bitter partisan split campaign. That as a company, you see something like this immigration ban, which is affecting people directly, you know, and let's say the more liberal audience, regardless of whether they're a customer, find find that quite objectionable. And but then then you, as a company, you have to decide. You know, we we had a poll, a Reuters Ipsos poll, it said forty nine percent versus 41 on the other side 49 percent said they approved or a lot or a bit of trump's immigration move and and a smaller number 41 percent said they did not so as a company you know not only do you have to think about your own position if you have one and position of your employees you have to say what are my customers mostly the people who support this ban or mostly the people who don't support this ban and 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 it's got to be really hard i I just had a meeting with somebody uh, in silicon valley and he has millions of users you know throughout the united states and he was saying it's really complicated because he didn't want to take too strong of a stand, even though personally this person disagreed with what Trump was doing. He might turn off doing. half his users. Exactly. He's like, a lot of our users agree with a lot of this stuff. And yeah. it's like, I don't, we can't, you know, we can't alienate them either. But I mean, here's the thing. I mean, Ford is a great example. I was, I was thinking on, on Monday morning, none, none of the, the big companies seem to have come out against this ban. Then Goldman Sachs came out and one or two others. But, but Ford finally came out, the only one of the big three um, automakers, and said, this is, goes against our principles, basically. Uh, and they had the name of both the, the CEO, Mark Fields, and the chairman, uh, Bill Ford. And I think having a chairman uh, from the family who controls 40% of the stock on there probably helps insulate Mark Fields a little bit in this, right? But I think they have one of the hardest decisions to make on this because they know full well that a lot of the heartland of America will probably agree with Trump's policy. And a lot of the heartland of America are the ones buying their very high margin F-150 trucks, which is the biggest selling car in America, their SUVs and everything. And if they alienate them, they're going to have real trouble if there's some kind of boycott of them. On the other hand, they're also a company that employs a great deal of uh, people from Arab countries. In fact, their their headquarters sits in one of the biggest enclaves of Arab citizens in this country, in Dearborn, just outside Detroit. And they ha- they've been hiring them for 100 years since they started. I mean, they've got to think about that. And also, they're trying to get much more into the tech world through connected autonomous cars. They need to appeal to millennials who want to both buy their products and also work at the company. Well, and the other element of the equation is that Trump has taken to beating up on Twitter and in public on companies that upset him in some way and don't buy American or don't hire American and all the rest of it. And the car makers have come in for that too. So it's a, a, another element of the equation is, am I or are we as a company by making a statement that might object in some way to what Trump is doing? Are you inviting more attention from him, negative attention from him, which could 
also be bad for your business, or if nothing else, it'd be a terrible distraction for a little while. Absolutely. And then it gets back to the point you're making earlier, Richard, that if, if this at all impacts the economy, I mean, we're not even talking about imports here or, or taxes. It's just purely what happens if there's so much divisiveness that somehow uh, consumer confidence gets hit or, or consumer spending drops. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine how that would happen at the moment, but anything's possible, it seems, under this presidency, given what we've seen in the first 12 days. Well, for our final segment, we're going to move away from politics, at least the politics in D.C., and move to the politics of democratic capitalism. Now, we're going to start with uh, what is becoming Exhibit A in this fight, which is Under Armour, uh, the athletic gear maker, which uh, earlier this week reported some pretty dismal earnings. And as a result, its stock was down, what, 25 percent off the back of that. Uh, and there's a rather interesting wrinkle to this, which is that a few years, a couple of years ago, Kevin Plank, the founder and chief executive, decided is this right, Jen, to implement a, uh, a dual-class stock so that he could keep control of the company? Right, a third class. A third class. A third class. So he oh. was going all Google and Facebook on... on uh, so a, a, a retailer goes, goes tech, at least in corporate governance. Right. So just to, to address that, there are already two classes of stock. Kevin Plank had control. He maintained it through the voting class. He was coming up against sunset provisions that, you know, basically he had to, you know, give up his voting rights and it would dilute his his control. So uh, an answer to that was, okay, we're going to create a third class of stock so we can, you know, issue more shares to employees, that sort of thing, and I can maintain my control. And his whole reason for this is that, you know, a founder-led approach is how they they sold it to investors is better for for Under Armour. Now, to put this in context, Under Armour was like just doing stellar. I mean, for the past um, several quarters, they've just had outstanding growth, 20% revenue growth, typically top line growth, sometimes better, yeah. quarter over quarter. Now they've hit a wall, so to speak, and, this, and, and a big this, wall. <laughs> <laughs> and this this, uh, this wall they hit, what, 18 months ago, I think you said in your piece? Yeah, well, so they, they started to, but now the, it's, it's starting to come through in the results, basically. So they every first of all under armor for anybody who doesn't know it's it's performance based athleisure wear if you will it's like hoodies and and yoga pants and sweat things and it's what sweat things <laughs> <laughs> i want a sweat you thing know. for christmas please <laughs> mm. sweat pants well you know that that sort of thing high performance gear for athletes and people who fancy themselves super athletic and it was doing really well. It's, it's a category that is taking off. And Nike's gotten into it. Adidas gotten into it. Lululemon. I mean, just like there are just tons of people or tons of companies that are now kind of doing this sort of thing. So competition isn't helping. Competition is a, is a big problem for them. So they've had to start discounting pretty deeply. And that's what happened this past quarter. Also, a lot of their uh, retail outlets like Sports Authority, they're going bankrupt, and so that that doesn't help them. So there are a lot of you know factors kind of affecting their results and their growth. And so basically, Kevin Plank is still saying, "Look, I, I'm here. We're going to try and write the course again. We're going to try and grow this company to 10 billion, and, and top line is what he From it's his now? goal. I, we don't know, but it's it's at about five billion right now. So right. he so given the fact that growth has been clipped, that's going to be a pretty difficult thing to hit. And all the while, he's saying to investors. 
trust me, trust me. It's all right. I'll turn it back around. And by the way, you don't really get a say in what I'm doing. Right. And so th- this is kind of a classic example of somebody who is an entrenched in management. And in some ways, it's good to have a founder around and, and you know, to kind of he, he's done a, a very good job for the company. We don't want to, you know, not say that it's been a complete dud for so long. But, you know, what happens is when they need fresh thinking or you need new management, well, all of a sudden you have somebody who's kind of dug in place. And he and he's been there. He's founded the company in 1996. So he's been there for, you know, 20 years plus. So, you know, that's a problem. And, and you know, the third class of stock that they issued, there's no voting rights, no voting say whatsoever. So you're kind of stuck unless you decide to sell, which it looks like a lot of investors did yesterday. Absolutely. And this brings us to another development earlier in the week, actually on the same day as earnings, which was, as, as I was looking at this, this, a group of 16 investors came up with- And they, big ones, big, right? Very, yeah, but they, big, they between big, them have $17 trillion of assets under management, so not small. And they announced uh, on Tuesday the, uh, what, what do they call it, the Investor Stewardship Group, which is, you know, it, it doesn't sound particularly exciting. But one of their, their core tenets here is to try and persuade companies to do away with these dual and triple class structures of stock. And it's something that has been a problem for many of them for uh, the problem that they've tried to get rid of for quite some time and not with a great deal of success, to be honest with you. I mean, as you were saying, you, know, you look at Google, Facebook and others, it's, and, and Under Armour doing this two years ago is a great example of how people are just or com- some companies are just riding roughshod over democratic capitalism, i.e. one share, one vote. So here's something I have to ask about this ISG fund. I mean, to me, the best way to go about this is to just not invest in dual class structure. I mean, if that to me, that would send the clearest message, you know, and these are big, you know, BlackRock and T. Rowe Price. I mean, and I'm sure they're looking at Snapchat, right, which is what's going to push it even further. Yeah, Snapchat's going for it. We're going to do an IPO and and actually give people in the IPO, investors in the IPO, no say whatsoever. So there's actually not even a voting stock that we're selling. Yeah, they're just they're just going right to the to the heart of it. So, you know, it's nice that they're going to try and do these proxy battles or try and persuade management or, you know, to set up their corporate structure that way. But to me, the, the best way to do it is just say, hey, we're not going to invest in these companies. No, ab- absolutely right. And I think sometimes they do. The problem is that if you are looking at the potential future of a company like Google back in 2003, 2004, when it went public, and you think it's got a good business in advertising, it's bound to do really well, it does search as well, we think it's going to be brilliant, but we're not going to buy it because of a corporate governance issue. Uh, but then we're going to miss out on our indices, or we're going to miss out on the benchmarks that track us. And if we do that, then people won't invest in us because they'll see that we've missed our benchmarks. Um, so it becomes a very difficult thing to do investor by investor, institutional investor by institutional investor. What I think they're hoping to do by, by having this group, and they want to expand it as well beyond the 16 um, co- uh, companies already involved, what they want to be able to do is say, look, you can come to us and say others are going to buy it, but look, we've got all of these people who've signed up to these principles, one of which is dual class shares, another of which is you know, boards, you've got to be much better at how you deal with and respond to investors, your owners, and various other things as well. They can point to this and say, you, ca- you can't you know, try and pull the wool over our eyes. We know that, uh, that our rivals in the industry feel the same way as we do. Well, I'm actually curious, too. I mean, did they do any studies in terms of their actual investments? Like, clearly, they want to, they want to say, and I understand, like, it's, it's, a good, it's a good principle and it's a good practice to have a, a, a say and, and have a much more democratic process. But are they doing this also because are dual-class shares 
more performers than those with like a single class of stock and a one vote to one no, vote? I'm, Did they I'm, do anything like that? I'm not. Well, they if they have, they haven't mentioned it. I think and there are a few things. Right, it's it's never so clear that having a dual class of stock does or doesn't make you a better performer. I think one of the reasons why investors are willing to invest in companies that have a dual class or triple class stock is because the companies may well be relatively new. So they're, they're trying to grow still. And I mean, arguably, they shouldn't be going to the capital markets or going to the public market if they're still growing. But if they've got big enough but they, and they're growing very quickly, like Google was or Facebook, there is arguably a, a reason for saying, we'll let you keep control founders for a certain period of time. Like you were saying earlier on, the sunset provisions are meant to deal with that, that we'll let you have control for or will agree to let you have control for five years, 10 years. Sometimes it can actually work in a company's favor, um, not necessarily in, st in stock price, but in, in how it deals with situations. And I think here, as I mentioned earlier on, in another segment, Ford Motor um, is 40% controlled. The vote is 40% controlled by the Ford family, and Bill Ford is the executive chairman at the moment of, of the company. But they only have 3.5%, of the outstanding stock. And that ought to be a really bad thing. And we have at times argued in the past they should get rid of this, especially 10 years ago during the crisis. But one could argue that actually the family added a degree of stability in a really tough time. And also we could argue, as I mentioned earlier, that maybe having that family behind it allows the CEO to go out and say things like the immigration ban that President Donald Trump has come up with is a bad thing. So I think investors will sometimes look at that and say it's not always clear cut. The ideal, and I think Breaking Views agrees with this as well, the ideal is democratic capitalism exists and should be one share, one vote. But there's always reasons why you might sort of divert from that. And actually, even looking at what the ISG has been saying in, in, in its document, they're not saying we must definitely get rid of this. It's like we, we want this to work according to a decent process. Yeah, well, uh, proxy season is coming up. and That's, that's right. But I mean, they're, they're actually pitching this at next year's proxy season because okay. they want everyone to get ready. They've even got, get, a, it's a bit, they've got a countdown clock on their website to, to the beginning of proxy season Fun. 2018. <laughs> it looks a bit silly, but actually it, it does show that they, as, as, they, as they say in their documents, they're trying their best uh, to work with companies. In fact, the reason why the ISG first started, or why the companies in there started talking about setting up the ISG was because they were becoming under pressure themselves from companies and the media and, in and individual investors for um, proxy voting. So you know, if you invest in an index fund, it will just often allegedly um, vote according to what a proxy firm says, ISS or Glass-Lewis. Exactly. And there was a lot of fury about this a couple of years ago. Jamie Dimon even came out and said at a conference, look, if you're, if you're handing off your votes to, to what a proxy firm is advising you to do, then you're a lazy investor. You're not a very good investor. Give me a break. Um, so they actually set this up as a way of trying to defend themselves. Uh, and then they turned it also into you know, a 50-50 split. We can defend ourselves here and show you companies what we're going to do on your behalf. So we're not going to treat you badly. But oh, the other 50% is we want you to give us things that we want as investors. And, yeah, we we'll want to say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see where that goes. I think it's, look, it's a smart move. Um, it's a little bit late in some respects. I mean, various investors and us have been arguing for one share, one vote for eons. Um, but hey, you know, uh, take it where you can get it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good idea. And I think it's also good that they're trying to um, give a defense of their own industry. All right. Well, OK, Anthony, thank you for that. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Anthony Curry, as well as our guests, Gina Chan and Richard Beals. Thanks to our producers, Bethel Hopde and Andrew D'Antonio. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes or SoundCloud. And do share your opinions about our show, especially on iTunes. And of course, please do tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Thank you for joining us.